So this is the first time Seattle Opera have ever mounted Nabucco. It's a biblical story. It's a setting of the of, of the story of Nebuchadnezzar. It tells of a an invading king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, who sacks Jerusalem and then has a conversion to the Hebrew faith, and the opera ends in a positive outcome. Nabucco is unusual in that it has effectively a happy ending. Nabucco is saved from his madness by a, a realization of, of the price he's paying, that his, that his daughter uh, will be executed along with the Hebrew people. And he returns from his madness and, and also converts to the Hebrew God. Is that the point of the opera? I think it's really about hubris. The key moment is at the end of the second act when he declares, I, I am not king, I am God, and then gets struck uh, by a thunderbolt for his pains. The point is that man has his place. If he overrides that, then there's a price to pay. In, in this case, it's the understanding of the price he will pay is the, the life of his beloved daughter. But more interestingly, it, it introduces themes which prevail throughout Verdi's work. He writes father-daughter uh, relationships, but, and oddly he didn't have a daughter himself. You know, and there's huge tenderness uh, of the fathers to their daughters. And I have a daughter myself, so I guess I, I, I relate to that. If you compare, say, the relationship of Rigoletto to Gilda to uh, that of Germont and Alfredo and Traviata, it's clear that Germont is thinking about his daughter, not about his son. It's, it's, there's something very strange going on here, clearly. Um, and I, I think it, you know, it may be that the, the intensity of the feeling is precisely because it's a feeling which Verdi didn't have himself and wanted. That seems an aspect which fascinated Verdi. The parents have a responsibility for their children, but sometimes repress them. In the case of Fenena, what I think is quite interesting is that she's an independent spirit. She converts to the Hebrew faith ahead of Nabucco's conversion at the end. So she goes her own way. She, she allows her feelings to lead her, even if it means effectively you know, being led to her death, dying, dying for her faith, which is part of the spur for Nabucco's conversion himself. The other side is Abigail, and here we see a direct parallel with, with King Lear. We, we, we see that the power for the throne and the fact that the children have defied their father is, is, you know, finds a direct match in, in certainly Goneril uh, and Lear. And the resulting madness which Nabucco goes through is, is obviously a, a match for Lear as well. Verdi was, of course, intensely interested in politics and an apostle for the cause of Italian unification, which wasn't going to occur until the early 1870s, so 30 years after this piece. Valpensiera became a kind of unofficial uh, national anthem um, for the Risorgimento, the, the move for Italian independence away from the rule of, of the Austrian Empire. After this opera, Verdi's name itself became an acronym for the cause. You know, the V-E-R-D-I became Victor Emmanuel, Re d'Italia, Victor Emmanuel, King of Italy. So um, this piece has always been inextricably linked with um, the Risorgimento. It's often asked, you know, was this piece intended as a spur, as, a, as an encouragement for that cause? I don't think so. I think actually it was a happy chance that echoes were found with the suffering Hebrew people, that Verdi's audience found a direct parallel to their situation. In many ways, Verdi's became a slightly unwitting apostle for the Risorgimento, but I don't think it was intended in this piece. But that's not to say Verdi didn't have very strong 
political convictions and certainly understood politics uh, as a dramatic force and as a, as a source, uh, certainly of the basis of a lot of his work. The idea of an invading army, of a sacking of a city, the movement of great political forces certainly was a, an attraction within the, the subject matter for Verdi, undoubtedly. I suppose you could ask, uh, you know, has anything um, changed in the Middle East in between um, the biblical times and, and now? It's part of a world which has always been in conflict. It's desert, <laughs> boundaries shift with the sands. Conflict has, has certainly been part of a, that region for, for many, many, many generations. Again, was that Verdi's intention? No. There have been many contemporary productions which draw parallels between the story and, and current events in the, in the Middle East. Personally, I, I've always found that kind of sustains for... 10 minutes, and then you get into big problems that people who brandish a Kalashnikov move in a different time. They move in a realistic time frame. And yet this music, the weight and grandeur of the music, actually plays against a scenic plan which requires very detailed naturalistic acting. And that's what, for me, has always been a big problem when I've seen contemporary productions of this piece, that somehow the visual image and the, the ideas are at odds with the musical pulse. Verdi is sometimes called opera's Shakespeare. He set three texts, Macbeth, uh, Othello, and Falstaff, which is a setting of The Merry Wives of Windsor. The opera he always intended to write and never got around to was, of course, King Lear. So in many ways, this work is the nearest he gets to King Lear. I think what's appealed to, to Verdi in Shakespeare is, A, the directness of the dramas, the, the pace, and also the, the variety. You know, what defines Shakespearean theatre from European theatre is the mixed genre, that even within tragedy there's black comedy, there are lighter moments, whereas a French tragedy is absolutely set on a tragic path. You know, he may have been a bit maybe envious of of, of, of the English having Shakespeare as their, as their national playwright and uh, wanted to claim a bit of that feeling for himself. Maybe the fact that Verdi was of humble birth, he may have identified with a, a writer who was not an aristocrat and wrote for the people and wrote popular theatre because Italian opera was the popular theatre of its time and Shakespeare was certainly writing for a popular audience. It wasn't just Verdi, of course. The Shakespeare underwent a huge revival in the 19th century. There was an element of Shakespeare which, first of all, appealed to the Romantic movement. They were the first to adopt him. The freedom of the characters, the, the, the free will of a lot of the characters, I think, appealed to the 19th century, certainly to the Romantic ideal. Nabucco is Verdi's third opera. And as we might expect from a composer who's finding his way still, stylistically, the piece very much belongs to the opera writing of the late 1830s, 1840s. It's written in quite a monumental style. It has big arias, big ensembles, which see, you know might hold the action up by comparison to the style Verdi evolved later in his life. But that's not to deny in any way its magnificence. It is opera written for singers. Some of these roles are extremely challenging. Probably Abagail is, is the best example of an almost unsingable role. And Nabucco himself has, has huge vocal challenges. It is written with a nod to the bel canto tradition where 
the skill of a performer, the technical complexity of a writing is part of the excitement of the entertainment or the thrill of big chorus writing is part of why the audience would have gone to see that. That's not to say that the later Verdi writing doesn't require huge vocal ability, but what Verdi moved towards is what we would call the through-composed style, which obviously we see in Puccini 60 years later, 70 years later. And the beginnings of that progression lie with especially Rigoletto and, and Traviata, which are eight, nine, ten years later in this piece. So don't expect the fluidity of, of Rigoletto because he hadn't got there yet, but do expect writing of huge vocal impact and monumental emotional charge to, to the characters in the situation. It's not dissimilar in its feel to Aida, which you know likewise has big, grand scenes, and quite apart from being set in that part of the world. And although much later, sort of, sort of has has a similar feel. Part of the, the fun of Aida is the Orientalism of, of the setting. I don't think that plays quite an, such an important part in Nabucco. It's in biblical times, but it's. It doesn't seem to be about that so much, whereas Aida is about, you know, written for Cairo, it's about Egypt. Whereas I don't think this piece is about Babylon and, and Jerusalem. It's actually about the way man relates to his God and to his faith. So one of the real challenges for Nabucco, and one we've tried to um, confront head-on with this production we're, we're mounting, is actually how to do it. And if you'll excuse a, a wee bit of theatre history, which I guess is my background, one of the things which fascinates me is the way that the theatrical conditions of any work have a, a huge impact on the style in which it's written. Now, we mentioned Shakespeare earlier, and if you look at the later Shakespeare plays, when we know, know he went to an indoor theatre away from the globe, that the style of his writing becomes much more intimate, much less bombastic and grandiloquent. In other words, Shakespeare's style, uh, Shakespeare understood that if you are writing on an open-air stage in London, you need your writing to be able to carry that environment. If you go indoors, you don't. Now, the theatre in Verdi's time in the 1840s was very different to what we have today. The relationship between the audience and the stage was completely different by dint of the fact that there was not yet the technology to create an illuminated stage and therefore a darkened auditorium. So in Verdi's time, the theatre would have been illuminated by candlelight and they would have made attempts to heighten the stage picture by footlights, by candles with a metal or glass for, um, reflector behind it. And the singers, by definition, would have been right down the front. Scenery was two-dimensional perspective painting, so there wasn't an awful lot of space before you go out of the perspective anyway. And therefore, you, we would have been witness to a very different form of theatre. There would have been much greater contact between the stage and audience than you get if you are in a darkened auditorium. Because by then, the singers singing these arias are in what we call inner thought rather than outer declamation. 
And this, is, it seems to me, has always been the big problem with this piece. I've seen it many times, and leaving aside the rather sort of awful monolithic biblical scenery, which tends to accompany it, that, that may be just my taste, but what really always gets, seems to get in the way is that the grandeur and weight of the music is better matched by a really intense and direct contact with the audience. When the audience are not part of that experience, what you actually see is a lot of people strutting around on stage being very big for seemingly no good reason. So what we've decided to do with this production here at Seattle Opera is make a a very daring experiment and say, okay, if this contact between audience and performer is germane to our thrilling experience of this piece, let's give it the best possible opportunity. Like a Shakespearean theatre, let's bring the performers right to the front. So we've built a stage which is not dissimilar to a Shakespearean thrust stage. And the flip side is we, we obviously had to put the orchestra somewhere else. So we've relocated them behind the main acting space. And you'll see them dimly in, in light, but basically the idea is you ignore their presence in the way that you try to ignore their presence in the pit. And, and we focus the attention very firmly on the performers. And what we're hoping is that we can therefore find an acting style which is much more direct, much less rhetorical, and yet respect the, the weight and grandeur of the music, and at the same time give the audience even more of a thrill of the exciting singing by the close proximity than we would if they were removed by about 30 foot minimum, which is the space that the orchestra pit takes up. Obviously, the chorus play a large part in this piece, so we're giving ourselves two options, really, when we need them, as in, for example, in Varpensiero, to be centre stage, they'll be centre stage, but where, ideally, we would prefer the acting space to be reduced to a presence purely for the protagonists, then we can have them present vocally, but not actually impinging on that space. So we're trying to get that Shakespearean feel, which is is in the piece, in a kind of modern way to capture the closeness that Verdi's audience would have feel to the performers, and vice versa, than we would be able to do if we just were in a conventional Priscini march telling this story. So it's an experiment, but it's one to try and get that thrill of this piece, uh, and to make it as strong an impact and therefore case for the piece, as we can. We invited Francois Racine, who has done a number of productions in this manner, playing around with space and relationship of audience and and performer. Francois came to Seattle and we brought in Dwayne Shuler, the lighting designer, and Bob Boniel, the video designer. And we had a big think tank and gradually evolved, collectively evolved, the scenic plan, if you like, and it was great. I, I can't remember whose idea it was to really bring it over the, the orchestra pit. We thought, well, why end at the front of a stage if we can come even further? It was, it was one of those examples where many minds make a much more creative solution than, than simply one. And, you know, that, that factored in, you know, practicalities of lighting, of projection surfaces. Um, all sorts of things came together in a, in a rather wonderful, productive day where we, um, we came up with what you'll see on stage. If we didn't want to have heavy, stolid, three-dimensional biblical scenery, we, we nevertheless have to suggest location. This opera requires us to see the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the Temple of Jerusalem and its destruction, former wonders of the world, which we don't really know what they look like. 
So we took advantage of the new thoughts by inviting Bob Boniel and his team to evolve a series of projected images, some of which are animated, some of which will stay still, which enable us to move very clearly from scene to scene when necessary to make comment or to add uh, intensity, be it a sense of location or a, a more abstract feeling and, and emotion to be reflected. The, on this vast, huge projection screen we get is a sense of awe at that without, you know, sometimes when you do it with scenery, at the end of the day, it is only scenery and however much you try you're you're painfully aware that this is a pale uh, rendering of something which was far greater by using projected or or video um, you can actually get a bigger sense of scale which is very apt to the epic nature of some of this piece and what I'm really pleased is that the team completely understood that this must never get in the way and be a means to its own end. Finding a balance for something which is arresting and creates sense of presence and a sense of, of mood must never deflect attention from the acting which is taking place. And I think with the extraordinary images they've evolved, I think they've really met that brief very well. I've seen many productions where the video projection is five or ten minutes. Very swiftly you go, oh, for God's sake, stop. Stop for a moment. It's... Um, it's you know because it's very easy for it to upstage the acting and in this way I think they've completely respected that that element to it. François Racine has been with Seattle Opera before in fact he won the Artist of the Year award for his staging of Bluebeard's Castle and their Wartung back in 2009 so he was very very delighted to to come back and he brought with him one of his colleagues from Montreal Jeanette Crenier our costume designer who's come up with with a marvelous array of costumes which really respect the biblical side to the story and at the same time make very clear who are the Hebrews who are the Babylonians and yet use fabrics which allow movement rather than being very heavy and stiff fabrics which rather restrict movement of of the performers so the costumes will enable a, a really sort of modern dynamic style of acting but at the same time pay absolute respect to the the biblical antecedents of the work. This really is a singer's opera and it's essential to cast singers who can ride the intense vocal demands. So we have in our our two Nabuccos we have two artists who are returning after a while to Seattle Opera, um, Gordon Hawkins uh, and Western Hurt are intensely experienced in this in this genre and you know are, are right on top of the character. Abigail is an extraordinary role and Mary Elizabeth Williams has sung this role before to to huge acclaim and of course we, we had her as Tosca quite recently and we're thrilled to have her back. And the alternate cast has a wonderful Italian singer called Raffaella Angeletti who again has done this role before. She'll be making her Seattle Opera debut as will both our Zacharias, Christian Van Horn, American singer and Andreas Bauer, who's come to us from Germany. So those three exceedingly difficult roles, we have some really top singers. We're also thrilled to welcome back Russell Thomas as Ismaela and making a Seattle Opera debut, Jamie Barton, who has just won the Richard Tucker Prize in New York a few months ago, uh, making her debut as Fenena. So I think we're over the moon about the quality of the cast we have for this. Maestro Carlo Montanaro has conducted this piece many times and in the early rehearsals. The singers have already been delighted by his attention to detail and the fact that he is not 
allowing uh, a sort of lazy rhetorical singing, which immediately in the music he was finding fine details, which all the singers responded to, because they realised that that is necessary if we're putting on a scenic presentation, which is saying we don't want kind of big, meaningless, abstract style singing. It's important that the, what's happening musically echoes the intensity and the intimacy of the, of the acting style, which our scenic plan allows for, and in fact demands in many ways. So it's a, it's a very, very happy coming together of Carlo's approach to this piece and what we have evolved scenically.